Uh, we're continuing our series that we're calling 200 Proof. And as we continue this series looking at, at cultural issues from a biblical standpoint, I want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, I, I want to remind you that my purpose in preaching through this series is not to get you to agree with me. Uh, matter of fact, you, you probably won't agree with me on every one of these subjects. And I, I, I'm not trying to force you to draw the same conclusions that I am. What I want you to do is to begin to think biblically. I want you to begin to develop a biblical biblical worldview so that we can understand as we look at these cultural issues, we examine them scripturally. Like I said in our very first sermon on the series, that we would hold the word of God as our measuring stick up to each of these views and each of these issues and see what the Bible says about it. Because you see what I'm afraid is for many Christians, we've allowed our views and convictions on each of these subjects and on many other things to be molded and shaped by a lot of things. They're molded and shaped by popular opinion. They're molded and shaped by whatever the political views that you have and political views that you hear around you. They're molded and shaped by our own experience. They're even molded and shaped by our preconceptions, how we were raised and the community that we were raised in. And all of those things are good things. All of those things help us become who we are. But we need to recognize that as Christians, those things are not authoritative. They are not where we need to come down on what we believe. Because if we are Christians, then we hold that the Bible is absolute truth. And that it is understood that when our popular opinion or political rhetoric or even how we've been raised bashes up against what the Word of God says, then the Word of God has to win. Even if that makes us uncomfortable, even if that shakes us out of a preconceived view or idea or conviction that maybe we held for a long time, and that's okay. And I recognize that as we go through these that there are some subjects in the Bible that it's very clear. It's very black and white. But there are a lot of subjects that are not as clear. It's not as black and white. And people can use scripture to, to look at both sides of the issue. So, so how do we as Christians wrestle with those things? Well, the first thing that we've got to do is challenge ourselves enough to wrestle with them. Instead of just standing pat on what we've always been told or what we heard a preacher say or what we heard a Sunday school teacher or even what our parents said, to get into the word of God and begin to wrestle with it. See, I know that as I preach through this series, as we look at various topics, um, there are going to be Sundays that you're going to pat me on the back and, you know, you're going to be, amen, preacher, that's exactly right, that's exactly what I want. And there are going to be other Sundays you're going to look and say, now what in the world are you saying? Because that's the nature of these topics and that's the nature of our viewpoints from that. And for some of you, that, that looking at me and saying, what in the world are you saying, maybe this morning. Because, see, last week, as we, as we started this little mini-series inside of this series, talking about all lives matter, we looked at the issue of what it means to be pro-life. And we looked at it in regards to abortion. We talked about abortion last week, how a Christian is supposed to approach abortion. If you missed it, you can go listen on the podcast. But in looking at that, we examine Scripture to discover that the Bible says that God is the creator of all life. And not only does God create life, but God holds life very preciously. Matter of fact, life is so important to God that he was willing to sacrifice his only son to give him up so that his son might redeem life. That's what Jesus said in John 3, 16, 3, 17. John 10, 10. It is the idea that life is so precious, life is so important that God said, I am going to send my son to redeem that life. 
And since God is the creator of all things and God holds life precious, then it holds true according to what we looked at last week in uh, Psalms 139, David saying that, that where can I go to escape from you? For you knew me before I was ever formed in my mother's womb. For all the days before me are marked out. So God is the only one who has the authority to determine when life ends. If God determines when life begins and he's the only authority to determine when life ends, that is the understanding of us supporting pro-life. That's a hard subject to begin to wrestle with, to understand that all of our days are numbered by God. And, and if he is the one who has that authority, then we become uh, on dangerous ground whenever we usurp that authority. We understood last week that, that just by calling it a choice does not justify taking that authority away from God. We talked about the dangers of, of giving that authority on when it is okay for someone's life to be ended, whether it's in the womb or whether it's outside the womb. Giving that power, giving that authority to a state or to a person is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Because the moment we take that power and that control from God and give it to you or give it to a woman or give it to the government, then who's to say they won't stop deciding what life matters? When they begin to say that, that maybe if a baby is in a womb and, and it's only seven weeks old or it's only 21 weeks old, that its life doesn't matter, then who are they to say that we've also decided that if someone is mentally handicapped, their lives don't matter anymore. Someone is infirm, someone is, is technically terminally ill, they're going to die, their life doesn't matter anymore. What about somebody who's mentally handicapped? Their life doesn't matter anymore. We talked about that slippery slope and how what that does is that creates a culture of death instead of culture of life. And I use the example of Nazi Germany and, and so many people say, well, that, you know, that's such a foreign subject. It's, it's so different from where we are, but is it really? Because you see today, we have become so passively numb to the culture of life that in America today, life is no more worth a, a pair of tennis shoes on the street to somebody. Life isn't even worth somebody pulling in front of you on a street and you getting mad and taking their life. Because we've become so desensitized to God's idea that every life is precious, we just shrug. We just, we just sit silently and passively by. And if that's the case, if, if life matters, if all life matters... If, if being pro-life and discovering that all life matters is something that we're going to stand for, then we need to recognize that it stands for much more than just being anti-abortion. We talked about that last week, and this is where it crosses over into looking at our other areas of our lives. You see, it means that if we are going to encourage and support and lift up and place the same value on life that God does, then it's going to affect our views on many things. You see, if that's the lens that we look at life, if we look at life through the lens that it is valuable, it is precious to God, and He is in control of it, then that changes the way we look at poverty. That changes the way we look at widows and orphans. It changes the way that we look at the hungry and the homeless. It changes the way we might look at, at people that are in need. It might even change the way that we look at things like immigration and those that are in our country. Now, before you get upset, I'm not going to talk about immigration this morning. We'll save that for another day. You see, we have to recognize that, that by saying that we're pro-life means 
that we hold life in the same esteem that God does. And we recognize that life is very valuable. And we recognize that he is in control of life. Not just the beginning of life, but also the end of life. And that has a very profound effect on what we're going to talk about this morning. For you see, there's two subjects I want to address. And they're, they're, they're a little different in their nature. But they both deal with whether or not God is in control of all of our lives. And for some of you this morning, it, it may be a challenge to you. For some of you this morning, it, it may be uh, something that you have to wrestle with. The first one I want to talk about is a, a subject known as euthanasia. Now, euthanasia is a term that may not be familiar to many of you. It, it's not talking about two teenagers backpacking through China. That's what I thought when I was a kid. Uh, some of you will get that later. But euthanasia is actually a, a Greek term. It is a Greek term that is translated good death. And the definition of euthanasia, and I use that term because that's just a clinical term, means it is the intentional killing of a patient by the direct intervention or lack of intervention by a physician or another party for the supposed good of a patient or others. Sometimes in America you may hear it called mercy killing or doctor-assisted suicide. In the United States it's illegal in all but two States, Washington and Oregon are the only two that allow doctor-assisted suicide or active euthanasia. Uh, usually it relates to the killing of those with a terminal disease or a constant pain. Some like to say that it is just a form of assisted suicide, but make no mistake, and I, I'm going to talk about suicide next week because it's a different issue. But make no mistake that it's not a doctor-assisted suicide. It's not a, an act of compassion. It's murder. It's taking into your own hands the decision when life should end and when life should be over. It's going beyond the idea that God is in control of our days and God numbers our days and it's you taking that decision and making it yourself. There's the idea of active euthanasia. And active euthanasia is, is a really two forms of euthanasia. Active euthanasia is when a doctor actually gives something, either a, a mixture of chemicals or a mixture of medicine to someone that causes them to die. And this became in the news again. It, it rises up every so often. In the 80s, you had Jack Kevorkian that was in Oregon and Washington that was uh, ended up helping 32 people uh, murder themselves. Uh, it just came in the news. Last year, there was a young lady in Arizona that was in her late 20s, early 30s that was terminally ill and she came out and, and very beautiful young lady. She got married because she knew she was going to die. And she came out and basically said, I'm going to do this, kill myself on this day. And people across the country uh, celebrated. People across the country said, good for you. And, uh, and, and the idea that she would say, and she couched it that way, I'm going to kill myself. I'm terminally ill. I've decided I want to decide when I die. Well, what happened is from the moment that she got married and she made that decision, she backed away from it because she began to realize how precious every day is. Even though she was in a lot of pain, even though she was in a struggle, she began to recognize that every day is different. Every day is something new. And she wanted to spend every waking moment with her new husband and with her mom and her dad and her brothers and her sisters. And she ended up dying of natural causes. You didn't hear that much in the news as much as you heard when she first came out and said she was going to move to Washington so that she could participate in this. That's called active euthanasia, and, and it's simply murder. Then there's another type of euthanasia, which is called passive euthanasia, and that is when medical treatment that can clearly enable a person to continue life, continue, uh, let them live longer 
and it's withheld. Now, this is different than something else I'm going to talk about. Sometimes these two become confused. This is the idea of someone that is in a terminal situation but is not expected to die, is not facing death, and by withholding help or nutrients or something else, you cause them to die prematurely. Uh, you may remember the case in Florida several years ago. A woman by the name of Terry Shivo uh, was in a coma state. She wasn't out of it. She was just in a coma state, but she depended on a medical feeding tube to keep her alive. She was in her 40s. Well, her husband, her ex-husband, who had divorced her after she got put in this medical state, wanted to get remarried. And he wanted to get remarried and, and take some of the insurance money. So for that sake, he wanted the feeding tube taken out so that she would die, arguing that the only thing keeping her alive was this feeding tube. And if this feeding tube was taken out, then she would die and, and because she was going to die anyway. Her parents wanted it to stay. The, the government... In Florida, all the way up to the Supreme Court, gave her husband the right to remove the feeding tube and that killed her prematurely. That, it's murder. Someone who is not on the verge of dying, someone who is not going to die, at that moment, their life is taken from them. Now, there's another thing that some of you have had to deal with, and, and that is called uh, what the medical term would be letting die um, Basically, some of you may have called it a living will. It is the idea, and it sometimes gets lumped in with euthanasia, but it's not the same thing. That's the idea of somebody who is already in the death process, somebody who is already on the verge of dying, and you do not give them uh, resuscitation to help bring them back, or you do not do extraordinary things to help keep them alive. They are already dying. They, some of you have had to make these decisions. You have a family member that, that is, is dying and has been brought back to life and is dying again and been brought back to life, and they will come and ask you, do you want us to do extraordinary measures to bring them back to life? And you recognize and you wrestle with the idea that they are already in the death process. By, by doing these measures, it is not going to extend their life any further. They are going to die of natural causes. You see, euthanasia on the medical certificate, the death certificate, it doesn't say they died of natural causes. It says they died because they were either withheld something or they died because uh, they were poisoned or they were murdered. So there's a big difference. But all of these things come under the heading of, is God in control? You see, if we believe that God is appointed every day, as David said in Psalms 139, then we have to believe that he should be in charge of determining when we end our lives. Now, for some of you that have had to face this, this can be an emotional issue. It can be a struggle. It can be an act of compassion. We say, well, well what do we do? Wouldn't it be more compassionate if someone is suffering or someone is in pain to help them alleviate that pain? Listen, the Bible never promises we won't face suffering and pain. But the Bible does promise us that in our suffering and pain, we can gain victory. And if we believe that God is in control, we believe that even in those moments of suffering and pain, even in those moments that we call our last, God can use us to make a difference. The Bible clearly says that when God is done with us, he calls us home. And by taking that choice onto ourselves, we are removing, we are usurping God's control and God's authority. Now, I have to tell you, I've walked this. Those of you that know my testimony, my mother who was diagnosed with, with diabetes as a child when she was in her late 30s and I was a teenager, the oldest in the family, my parents were divorced, crashed. Her heart gave out. Her diabetes, she had an infection in her foot and it caused her heart and, and they brought her back and, and they should 
we, we said, do everything you can to help her. They brought her back. But from that moment, when she was 40, to the time that she passed away when she was 43, she was in and out of nursing homes. She was in and out of hospitals. She lost the use of her kidneys, had to go on weekly dialysis. She became blind, lost total sight, had to be put on a heart monitor, continually monitored. So for three years, I watched my mom suffer and struggle and be in pain. And I can't tell you there weren't times that I thought, Lord, take her home. But I also can't tell you how many times I went to the nursing home and could hear her when I walked in the door singing Amazing Grace or Blessed Assurance or How Great Thou Art. Because see, no matter what my mom faced, she never wanted to give up. She never said, I'm done, because she had younger kids. I had younger brothers and sisters. She said, every day that I get to spend with them, I may not can see them. I may not can, can go and do the things that I wanted to do at this age. But every time that I can spend another moment with them is a moment I want to take. Yes, she was in pain. Yes, they were trying to do things, and, and her, her diabetes was destroying her circulation. It was so difficult to take her to dialysis twice a week and have to load her up and take her and sit there for hours while they took the blood and then put the blood back in and, and to see her go through that suffering. But she said, I would not change one minute of it because she recognized every day counts and God's in control. And when he's done, he'll take us home. Listen to what Paul says, Philippians chapter 1. said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always in Christ, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or my death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. For if I am going on living in the body, that will mean a faithful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know, for I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is also more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What's all that say? Paul is at the end of his life. He says, listen, I, I long to be with Jesus. I long to see Jesus face to face. But I know that God's not done with me. I know that I have a purpose. You see, if we are going to be pro-life, we need to acknowledge that God loves all life. That God is in control all the way up until the end. Now, most of us as Christians, I would probably say in this room that, that uh, most of us would agree that God should be the one who determines when our life ends. Even if it's somebody who has a grim medical diagnosis, most of us say, yes, we believe that God is in control and, and, and he should be the one to decide when it's all over. Even somebody that's facing incredible, difficult life challenges. You say, amen, pastor, we need to let God decide those things. But what about the case when it's a criminal who's been charged with a capital offense? What about somebody who has been charged for murder, has been condemned to death by the state and by government? Does God still get to decide whether he lives or dies? What about capital punishment? Some of you are looking at me like, oh no, pastor, you're crossing the line. You've gone from preaching to meddling, right? You see, if we are going to be consistently pro-life, that means we stand up for all life. See, if we believe that God is the one who decides when life should be ended, whether it's in the womb or whether it's in a prison cell, then we need to be consistent about that. Because you see, I think many times while we say we are pro-life, we are really conditionally pro-life. 
We're pro-life as long as it fits into what we uh, idea and we believe in, in our own little worldview. And listen, I grew up in Texas. If you didn't support the death penalty in Texas, you were crazy. You were either a, a hippie or, or a Yankee. That was pretty much the two things. Those were the worst things you could be called in Texas. I mean, it was part of our culture. I don't know that I ever met somebody growing up that wasn't for the death penalty. That didn't say that, that, you know, the Bible says an eye for an eye, right? But does it really say that? See, I had a childhood friend 42 years ago yesterday who was killed by his father. Went to my church, lived in my neighborhood, saw him in school. His father packed a pixie stick full of cyanide and poisoned his son for insurance money. The funeral that we all went to, his father stood up and sang a song and cried for his son. And the next week they arrested him with evidence that he murdered his own son. Seven years old. If ever in God's sense of justice there was someone who deserved to die, it was Ronald O'Brien. I mean, in my mind, if ever there was a chance that someone should be killed, it's him. And he was put on death row. And after 20 years, he was condemned to die by lethal injection. And his life was taken from him. And I can remember discussing with friends from the neighborhood and friends that walked that path with those families saying, Amen, this is right. So I never even questioned it. I heard preachers stand in the pulpit and say, Listen, capital punishment is the ultimate way to be pro-life. Because God values life so much that if someone takes something that God values so much, they forfeit their life. And that sounds good, and and that's what the Old Testament used. But I began to think, don't we tell our kids that two wrongs don't make a right? But yet what we say is that someone forfeits their life because they murder, then they should be murdered. And I began to wrestle with it. You see, I began to wrestle with the idea that maybe... The death penalty should be okay if we lived in a perfect world. If we lived in a perfect world where the systems were all lined up together, where everyone got the same legal representation, maybe it would be okay. Maybe it'd be okay if we didn't live in a legal system where 70% of those that are charged with capital offenses can't afford attorneys. So they get assigned attorneys. And usually the attorneys they get assigned are first-year law people that most of them have no courtroom experience and they're paid $800 to $1,000 for a case that they're pressured to get through. You see, maybe the death penalty would be okay if we were consistent in our death penalty. If we had a system that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But we have a system in our government and we have a system that we live in today where when people murder, some of them don't die, some of them do. Some of them get prison, some of them get parole, some of them get let out for the same crime. That didn't seem real consistent. You see, the death penalty may be okay if, if we lived in a system where, where everyone understood that there was no innocent people going to be condemned. But yet, since 1955 in the United States of America, 69 people who were wrongly convicted and put on death row have been released later because of DNA evidence that came out. 21 of those people since 1993. 
You see, it'd be okay if we had a death system, a capital punishment program that guaranteed that, that only those that we really know were guilty were forfeiting their life. But yet, since 1950, 23 people have been proven innocent that have forfeited their life on death row. You say, well, Pastor, that's only 23 people. Got to break a few eggs, right? Just 23 innocent people were killed in our system. Sounds like pretty good. How many have we killed? Over 1,000 in that same time period. 23 innocent? That may sound good unless it's your dad, your brother, your son. Are we willing to be so adamant that we support a system and a program that is willing to to have those kind of odds, willing to say that, that... it's better to kill a few innocent people than to put these people away for life. Is that pro-life? You say, well, pastor, all that stuff's good, but you told us, what does the Bible say? What about that eye for an eye? Well, that, that idea of an eye for an eye, lex talonis is that, that term, and it comes from even before Moses. It was Hammurabi's law. And the lex talonis is a Latin phrase. What it means is retributive law. It means retaliation law. It's the idea that if somebody does something to you, you do something to them. Does that still hold true? Somebody said, well, Jesus said it, didn't he? Did he? Listen to what Jesus said about it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. For you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tuning tunic let him have your cloak as well if someone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you now see to me it's just me i'm not going to force you on how to think but it sounds like jesus is taking that retributive justice that that eye for an eye and he's introducing a new form of justice he's introducing a new idea with grace and mercy and forgiveness and instead of retaliating it sounds to me like he is entering a redemptive form of justice now i know you say well the old testament pastor is full of the death penalty and it is but is it the same as our system today is the old testament can we use that to justify what we do in the united states of america i mean let's think about this let me give you just a short paraphrase of how the death system was implemented in the old testament the very first murder happened when cain and abel right cain slew his brother abel so surely god swooped in and killed cain for taking his brother's life right no The Bible says in Genesis chapter 4, when God is presented with murder, he takes Cain and he excludes him from the community and he casts him out. And Cain comes back to God in Genesis chapter 4 and says, God, if I leave, people will come after me and they will murder me because of what I've done. And God said, no, they won't. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a mark on you so anybody that sees you knows who you are. And if anyone touches a hair on your head, they will receive seven times my vengeance. So God was confronted with murder. Did he answer with murder? Then on through the system, you had Noah. As Noah came, man began to eat animals and man began to kill one another. 
And so as Moses came in, you began to have the law that was presented. And the law clearly said, if you take a life, if you shed the blood, then you are forfeiting your own blood. But it was a very high standard to forfeit your blood. You had to have three witnesses, eyewitnesses, guaranteeing it. And even in that standard, what those people believed under the Old Testament law is they were acting as the hand of God. That they were not just punishing and they were not just trying to control people. They were acting as God's punishment for someone sacrificing a life. But what happened is over time throughout the Old Testament as the Jewish system progressed, by the time Jesus came around, the death sentence and the death penalty had evolved to where there were 11 offenses that you could be put to death for. 11 reasons, including talking back to your parents, disobeying your parents, adultery, working on the Sabbath, not taking the Sabbath seriously. I mean, all of those you could be killed for. So is that something we want to say, hey man, let's, let's bring that back. Now I've got a teenager, I say amen, right? But you see, what happened is in man's hands, something that God ordained maybe to Moses in the Old Testament law and said, listen, this is my way of controlling issues. Remember when Moses and the early Israelites, they didn't have prisons, they didn't have jails. It was the only way to control society, that they presented this hard law. And then Jesus saw this law and he said, wait a minute, it's been abused. Wait a minute, this law and this system has been corrupted. So what I'm going to tell you is instead of an eye for an eye, instead of retribution, I'm going to introduce a new term, and that's redemption. And the idea that while people need to give an account for what they do, people have to pay consequences for their actions. But Jesus introduced a path for those who are condemned to now be restored and redeemed. You and I better say amen to that. Because that, without that path of restoration, without that path of redemption, you and I are condemned. Jesus said there's no person beyond hope. There's no person. Okay, pastor, how did Jesus respond? Well, we know of at least one encounter when he encountered somebody that was under the death penalty. The woman caught in adultery. They were about to start casting stones. Jesus came up to her. He didn't, he didn't wipe away her sin. He didn't say she's okay. She, she gets off scot-free. What did he say? Go and sin no more. But he looked at the people about to commit the murder and said, ye without sin cast the first stone. So what does it mean to be pro-life? I'm not saying that people shouldn't be held accountable. But what I am saying is that the death penalty, the way we have it, today in our world denies Christ the power to redeem, restore, and transform. You see, we usurp the authority that is only God's to determine when someone should die and when someone should live. God doesn't punish out of anger or vengeance. He punishes out of a desire to see man's life be turned around. We can't give in to the temptation for blood, the temptation for retaliation, the temptation for revenge. We need to trust that God, God's going to punish those who need punishing. If not quickly, ultimately. You see, if we believe that God can change us, then we have to believe that God can change even a murderer. Even a murderer like Moses. He was a murderer. Even a murderer like David. He was a murderer. 
that God changed. Even a murderer like Saul. Man, think about Saul. If there was ever a person who deserved the death penalty, it's Saul. I mean, he killed Christians. He persecuted the early church. He, he, he went out of his way to make sure that Christians were stoned and their jobs were taken away and their families were disrupted. But instead of having him murdered, what did God do? He introduced him to reformation and restoration. And what did Paul do with his second chance? He changed the church. He changed the world. Now, I know people say, well, Pastor Romans 13 says that, you know, and this is always the excuse that, that gives the government the authority to, to take life. It's not what Romans 13 says. Go and study it. It says there that gives the government the authority of the sword. Well, the sword there is, is not the sword of death. It's the sword of justice. And just because God grants the government the authority doesn't mean he blesses it. Doesn't mean he blesses how they handle it. That's the same passage that the Nazis used to justify what they were doing. Listen, God grants us the authority, so you can't question it. It's not what Paul was saying in Romans 13. Paul, who recognized what it meant to, to experience redemption. You see, what I want us to think about this morning, and I'm almost done, is to be consistently pro-life. To recognize that God is in control of all life and all death, and, and he is always working to bring about redemption and restoration. I told you, I grew up pro-capital punishment, militant, even early in my ministry. When I was serving in College Station, we were about an hour away from Huntsville. Huntsville is the home of Texas Death Row, the Walls Unit. More people in the United States of America have been put to death in that prison, in that unit, than all the others combined. And one day a chaplain that works on the Walls Unit in Huntsville came and spoke to a group of pastors about his Bible study and what he was teaching and he began to talk about a woman that he had met in prison who had given her life to Jesus Christ. Her name was Carly Faye Tucker. And he said this woman was a scared young woman who was coerced into doing some things that she didn't know and she was on drugs and she committed a murder and she was condemned to death row. But after she got in prison, she was introduced to Jesus Christ. He said, I've never seen a life change the way it changed. She began to lead women to Christ. He shared, he said, listen, I can point to at least 10 women on death row and in the prison that she's led to Jesus Christ. She has a weekly Bible study with 25 women coming. She is mentoring. But yet, she was to be executed in 1998. And as it grew closer to her execution date, people began to hear the story of what God had done, that she'd experienced redemption, she'd experienced restoration. And people from all over the country, even those that were pro-death penalty, even those that supported capital punishment, came together and said, surely we can find a way to help her. They, they weren't saying let her off. No one was suggesting. They said, listen, what difference does it make if we kill her or we keep her in prison for life? Now, I know there's fiscal conservatives that say, well, it costs more money. Somebody's going to be in prison for 40 years. Are we really willing to risk life or death decisions on money? When in reality, that's not true. It costs on average to keep someone on death row $1.6 million. 
Average death row stay is 25 years in the United States of America to allow for their appeal process to go through. You know how much it costs to keep someone in prison, life without parole for 35 years? $750,000. So really, to keep them in prison without parole is half the cost of putting them to death. They begged, please help her. No one listened. She was put to death. And this minister stood in front of our group as I listened to him talk and said, I wonder what else she could have done. Who else she could have reached. How many more women she could have made a difference. If only she'd have had the time. See, I'm not trying to tell you how to think. Not trying to tell you what we should do. But we need to recognize that the death penalty doesn't hold those things into account. It doesn't think about what could or what should happen. But we can. We can think about those things. And it began to make me wrestle. Did I have political convictions or did I have biblical convictions? Did I have my parents' convictions or my community's convictions or did I have biblical convictions? Did I believe that someone's crime forfeited their chance for redemption? Did I believe that they forfeited their chance for grace? Now listen, I've got to be honest. When I hear on the news of someone that's committed a horrible, heinous crime, I get angry, I get sick, I want justice. Sometimes even I want blood to be spilled. But God reminds me in that moment that that's probably the same way he felt when he looked at me. When I was in sin when I was in rebellion, when I was under a death sentence. And instead of demanding justice and retribution, God offered grace. So I'm not saying people shouldn't give an account. I'm just saying, what good does it do for us to usurp God's authority and put somebody to death? 